Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you the CrowdCube and Cedars merger has been shut down by the CMA. Feedsai becomes a unicorn following the latest raise, highlighting the need for protection against online financial crime. And debit cards just for pet owners, a new US fintech sincere to target pet parents with its offering. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 516 of Fintech Insider. I'm Adam Davis, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host for today, 11FS's second sea lord, Mel Stringer. Hi. Mel, do you care to explain? <laughs> Hiya. Um, yeah, so I'm living my best life, and this is my glorious uh, title that I'm adopting um, temporarily because in um, in one of the podcasts recently, we were talking about uh, Elon Musk and, uh, you know, his new job title of the techno king of Tesla. And we got to talking about what the ultimate job title would be. And for me, that would be Second Sea Lord of the Royal Navy. Nice. But Second Sea Lord of 11FS is a very close second. So I'm having a wonderful time. And actually, I did actually write to Nick Hine, who is the actual Second Sea Lord, because I thought there might be some kind of like... (laughs) arrest or official annoyance scenario that might happen but he was very cool with it yeah he said yeah crack on oh wow so he's he's happy for you to steal his job title i don't even know what the second sea lord does but well he's he's very cool man so he's responsible for personnel of the royal navy and uh, the special forces just general kind of commanding of the high seas very cool. Well, I get seasick, so I'm pretty sure we'd never meet. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, that sounds very cool. Um, um, look, look, we, we, we are not alone. We're joined, albeit remotely, still remotely, but hopefully, fingers crossed, not for so much longer, by some amazing guests making a welcome return. We have Daniel Lanyon, who's the editor-in-chief at AltFi. Daniel, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. How are you doing? Hi, Adam. Great to be back. And Good to have you. Uh, and making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Nuno Sebastio, who's the CEO of Feedsai. Nuno, Welcome to the show. You've had some great news this week, and I can't wait to deep dive into that in a bit. Where are you dialing in from? Thank you for having me. Yes, we did. I'm dialing actually from sunny Lisbon. Oh, lovely. Oh, lovely. And I'm sure it is sunny in Lisbon. We've actually, yeah, we've, we started working with an organization down there, and the weather is just outrageous. It makes me incredibly jealous, but it's great to have you on. Let's revert to our first story uh, and let's start today's show. So the first story comes from AltFi and it is that the regulator has applied the brakes to the CrowdCube and Siege's merger. So this merger was first announced back in October 2020. And this was pretty much, I think, the biggest two crowdfunding platforms there are maybe in the world, certainly in the UK. I'll leave that up for the panel to decide. Last week, the CMA said that the proposed merger may be expected to result in a substantial lessening of competition and the provisional findings proposed, the only effective remedy is likely to be a prohibition of the merger, which they then went on to do at the end of last week. The CMA has determined that the merger would see the new company hold a combined share of between 90 and 100% of the equity crowdfunding market in the UK. When you hear that kind of stat, it maybe becomes a bit more obvious why they've blocked it. Both Cedars and Crowdcube also recently said that the merger is vital to their survival, and we'll come on to that in a minute, and both have very recently expressed their disappointment at the outcome. Before we dig into this story, we heard from the CEO and co-founder of Crowdcube, Darren Westlake, uh, to find out more. It's obviously hugely frustrating that the CMA have decided to block our merger with Cedars. And it is frankly mystifying how they can define the market so narrowly and not understand how we're minnows in this massive market for, for equity finance. And whilst we're in a good position financially, given that we've been profitable for the last few quarters now, we can move on. What concerns me most is that the impacts that this approach that we're seeing from the CMA will have on innovation in the UK. And what we're great at in this country is using tech to create disruptive services that challenge established stagnant markets. And what we know is that small companies carve out these new niches and new ways of doing things in these industries. But often they then can find it hard to become profitable. And so 
consolidation is the next inevitable and natural step, which then enables one or two of those challenger companies to become of sufficient size to really challenge the incumbents. But if this consolidation ends up being prevented because of a narrow market definition, for instance, then it's never going to be possible to create a company that can really do that. So we really need an environment that encourages and fosters innovation and disruption. Otherwise, Britain will be the worst off for it. Daniel, you and the team at Altfi covered this story pretty extensively. Really keen to get your initial reaction to this and, and your thoughts. Thanks, Adam. So I would say, just to start with, I, I do share some of Darren's sentiment that he he just expressed there. Obviously, crowdfunding in the UK is you know a, a pretty good success story within fintech. Crowdcube and Cedars do represent a large share, if not the lion's share, of the UK crowdfunding market. Circa 90%, I think, is the number that is floating around. Now, is it a bit of a short-sighted viewpoint? Well, I would argue, yes, it is. We've got to also remember that there are a huge number of firms who are being funded via crowdfunding and therefore you know, are somewhat evidential of bringing competition to the wider market. So I think that's something that, that is really important to be accounted for in this decision. But then most importantly, really the question that, that Darren did you know, highlight, is crowdfunding separate from you know, other areas of financing or is it actually in competition with other areas of financing? And I would say it very much is in competition with other areas of financing, not least you know, from government initiatives, but particularly venture capital. So I would say that you want to have a healthy crowdfunding sector if you want to increase competition in that equity financing market. And, and therefore, if this does mean that, let's just say, one or, or perhaps even both firms will struggle to be materially competitive going forward, then that's a bad outcome for competition. So I, I would say that Darren very much has a point. Yeah, I mean, to, to throw out some stats on this one, and I'm not sure the exact percentage, but I've, I've seen numbers like 50% of those who go for crowdfunding are successful, quote unquote, whatever successful means. I think Kickstarter said that their rate was about 37%, which is also pretty good. And they say that around one in five, so about 20% of businesses are successful full stop in the future. Again, what line successful means, I suppose, is up to the business, but it shows that it's definitely a, a healthy way to raise. And since 2011, over 2 billion has been raised on crowdfunding platforms, which is pretty phenomenal. And if you look at some of the companies, I guess, who have gone through the Monzo Free Trade, Curve, Chip, Coconut, Snoop, Go Henry, you're talking about sort of a, a literary of some of the biggest fintechs that are out there at the moment. I think w w one of the interesting things I was going to mention was just from Cedars and Crowdcube's perspective, they've gone back with well, actually, if this happens, we could potentially fold or one of us could fold because, you know, there's not enough money and not enough revenue to go around for us both to be in existence. Both have lost money up to this point, albeit not to sort of the level of, I suppose, traditional fintechs. What's your thought on that? I think uh, the numbers were in 2019. Crowdcube lost, I think, around 2.6 million, 3 million in 2018. I think Cedars is around 5 million lost in 2019. So not enormous. But in your opinion, is that curve... Will that stop? And actually what you're seeing, you know, over the next five to 10 years is a profitable platforms and therefore, you know, almost that is null and void, that reasoning or how does that sit with you? Well, I think it's worth noting that since um, the inception, let's say, of both of these firms, we haven't seen a huge number of competitors come into the field. So what does that tell us? Well, economic theory would say that you would see competition for deals increase if it were a profitable market. So, you know, what's the likelihood of those losses increasing or at least, you know, being perpetuated without a merger? It would seem that that's quite likely. Scale is obviously very, very important and it doesn't look like either platform has been able to achieve that scale, you know, after a number of years. I, I don't remember exactly when when both were founded, but, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, well over sort of five years, six years, I would say that there very much is a, a need for some sort of consolidation of the sector, which, you know, ironically might then bring about competition because a scalable and sort of sustainable model has been proven for the sector. I think it's worth also adding that crowdfunding is a risky thing to do. Investing in startups is risky. Most startups do fail. So this is not for everybody. 
but certainly being able to invest into private companies is something that traditionally and, and still very much is the preserve of you know high net worth or institutional investors who can afford the minimum entry requirements into venture capital funds. Yeah, it definitely opens up access. Mel, I'm with your your nouveau na- navy background. Uh, I, I wondered whether you'd seen this week Cedars on Twitter when the news was announced. Yeah, they shot down the CMA. They put a picture of the uh, of the boat stranded in the Suez Canal and saying, basically likening the boat, as in uh, obviously the one that was blocked, to the CMA and likening the digger that was trying to get it out. Oh, I love that meme. It's, yeah, it's viral. <laughs> the tiny little digger that's, that's trying, just one digger that's trying to turn this huge ship around. Um, yeah, it was it was one of the, the 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 many puns that were going around. But I mean, just given the fact that the accessibility of crowdfunding platforms has been so successful, is is this anti? innovation in your mind? I don't know. I'm a bit on the fence. I, I can certainly see where Darren's coming from. And I do see your point, Daniel. But I think that, you know, both of these platforms have been responsible for some really huge funding raises um, previously. And there's been loads of, you know, now household names that have managed to successfully uh, raise money on these these platforms. And as you say, they are still relatively small in terms of you know investor cohorts and liquidity that goes through that but then i wonder if we're also sort of forgetting the job to be done of these crowdfunding platforms which is for the investor it's you know for the individual to be able to seek a return on their investment and yes it is somewhat risky but investing in other asset classes or other ventures and opportunities can you know considerably be uh, be risky as well so I think that keeping it small in the past has sort of emulated the experience of innovation hubs where you might have 20 or 50 or so investors that get to know founders and invest more discreetly, I suppose. And so to me, the idea of these two merging is sort of the antithesis of that kind of culture, that intimate culture. So I'm not sure if that actually would then allow them to compete in the same way. And I think if they're assuming that their you know profit base is going to improve and their costs are going to go down, they have to imagine that the investor pools between both platforms are actually discrete. So it's not the same people that are logged into two platforms offering similar amounts of money. You know, an investor has chosen a platform and is loyal to that platform. So I'm not entirely convinced that merging would necessarily be good for the investor. Cool. And Nuno, I just want to give you the last word on this. I know you guys are on your Series D, as we're going to cover in a sec. But have you ever considered crowdfunding in, in any of your previous rounds? And and if so, why? And if not, well, how come? It's a good point. I mean, uh, no, yeah, we, we haven't for the single reason that I think when we raised uh, the, our early, very early rounds back in 2012, 2014, you know, crowdfunding wasn't there. I myself have supported a number of crowdfunding initiatives, both in Europe and in the U.S., and I think these platforms are very valid. I mean, in the case of Cedars, it's actually one of the founders is actually a very good friend of mine. is a Portuguese guy called Carlos Silva. And uh, I actually feel for them in the sense that, you know, when you're building a business, you know, I'm more concerned kind of like with the morale in those, in those two companies of the teams. When you're building a business, you know, you believe this is a good thing to do for the market, for your competitors, even for your long-term future. And then all of a sudden, regulator comes along and shuts you down, which, you know, you have to understand what are their reasons. What I'd like to point is it's kind of like the second time I see this happen in a fairly short time frame. Uh, you know, also in other cases in the US when the regulator shut down the plaid acquisition by by Visa. And we gotta we gotta understand that, right? Because in the end, innovation needs to be there and competition needs to be there. In this case, two small players merging. I don't agree that you know they're dominating in a market. They're mar- I mean they're, they're they're David in a market that is full of Goliaths, right? And and uh, if anything, you know, my view is that they would be merging to survive. So I have a, I have a you know being a founder myself, I have a, a deep, uh, you know a view of that they, they should be allowed to do it. And even more, I mean, you know, look at the companies that went through them. You know, would Monzo be around? Would Curve be around if it wasn't for those platforms, right? So they do provide a value to society and healthy competition is important. I think they have so many big competitors that actually not allowed, in, in my view, to merge is actually stifling competition in my, because they would be a stronger player in a much bigger market. 
Yeah, I think that's that, that's the key thing, isn't it? It's like the focus on how big is your market, and maybe it's the regulators are seeing that as a, as quite a small pool. And in reality, Daniel, as you said as well before, they're playing in a much wider market for you know investor capital and and, and corporate investors and you know organisations of that of that nature. Let's move on to the next story, where Nuno, obviously, you're going to feature pr- pretty heavily because it's about your company Feedsai, who's achieved unicorn status on a two hundred million dollar fundraise. This was a story covered in Finextra, but it's been carried on other news outlets as well. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background, Nuno, in your company, which you could probably do much better than me, uh, and then I'll come over to you. <laughs> so it's an AI-based financial crime detection platform whose now value obviously is over $1 billion. Feedside monitors companies with more than 800 million customers in 190 countries. You guys are big, uh, as well as uh, four of the five largest banks in North America. The investment comes as demand for Feedside's technology picks up, just given, again, you know, we've talked about it quite a lot on this show, this sort of shift digital banking, and therefore the associated fraud risks, which have become apparent over the last 12 months. And this was staggering when I read this, but in the last quarter of 2020 alone, according to FeedSize data, customers have experienced a 650% increase in account takeover scams, a 600% increase in impersonation scams, and a 250% increase in online banking fraud attacks compared to the first quarter of 2020. So that's in like four quarters, that's the raise. That's absolutely mind-boggling. Nuno, let's come to you. Firstly, congratulations on the raise. That's awesome. I want to deep dive into those numbers in a sec. But first of all, what does the funding, I guess, allow you to do and and what are you planning to do with it? Yeah, I mean, look, very good description, actually. Very accurate. Thank you for that. (laughs) I mean, what the funding, I mean, it means a number of things. I mean, first uh, is, is validation of the market that we're on big, big market, but also more importantly, it allows us to, you know, keep on delivering to our clients. I mean, we work across the four regions in the world, US, Europe, Latin America, and APAC. What this allows us is to continue to invest in product, invest in sales, marketing, but above all, you know, deliver value to our clients that ultimately it translates into safety for consumers. And, and that's the game here is making sure that whenever you buy for stuff online, when you go to a grocery, you pay with, you, with your card or with your wallet, that that transaction is safe. That's just the way it should be. And, and you mentioned a stat, you know, Q1 last year versus Q4 last, last year. That's essentially pre-COVID and post-COVID. And we all, you know, we're all at home, right? So, I mean, not, none of us went to a branch of a bank in the last year or so. Probably a lot of us, even a lot longer than that. So how do you make sure people are safe when they're, you know, trying to open a bank account. You get you got your first job last December. You got out of college. How do you get your first bank account? So that's the kind of stuff that we come in and that's what we do across the, the globe. Yeah. And it's and I guess what one question I have I mean, just hearing those numbers again, the percentage increased in fraud attacks, fraudulent attacks, et cetera. I guess how confident are you given those increases? Uh, and what's the differentiation in terms of what you use from an AI perspective to be able to counter that increase? And how confident are you, I guess, that you're able to keep ahead of those scammers? So look, I mean an even bigger number is we work with both, you know, financial services or institutions, you know, banks that serve consumers, but also those that work with businesses that's, you know, look at remittances from one bank to another. 80% of the Fortune 500 companies benefit from Feedsign as we protect these very large remittances using, you know, from B2B businesses. And to your point, it comes down to, we do what we do. It comes down to three capabilities that we have. One is speed. Not only we process and we do use our technology in milliseconds, when we do our assessments of a transaction, of a payment, a remittance, we do that in line with the, with the transaction, but also the speed at which we enable our clients, right? One example I can talk about, you know, SoFi in the US, they come to us, they're launching Samsung Pay, we go live in three months with them. From the minute we, go, we contact to the minute they go live. Or with the speed at which we process, you know, Citibank, trade and treasury solutions, you know, B2B payments. So that's the, you know, you have to enable your clients that way. And then it's another one that is very important. The ease of use, we use machine learning. It's really important that we explain something we call explainable AI. It's we explain why are we reaching a certain conclusion when we say this is bad, don't do it. Or we have some questions about that and then doing it in a responsible way. There's been a number of news where credit decisioning based on machine learning, had biases and discriminated, for instance, based on gender or based on ethnicity or zip codes, we make, you know, we, we, we go to extreme lengths 
on making sure and this is a, a new technology or new domain of machine learning that is done in a responsible way. This is the first principle to us. Our clients expect it and, not, and the consumers you know, demand it. I mean, you need to do this in a way that you're not biasing yourself and you keep everyone safe. So that's what we do. And this funding, it's to do more of that product roadmap strategically to make sure that we offer this comprehensive end-to-end financial crime and risk management solution. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, it's not the, um, I suppose to the end user, it might not be as sexy as, you know, Monzo and Starling and, you know, sort of those end brands. But this is basically the guy behind the guy. This is what powers what you do. Correct. Daniel, I was going to bring you in here because from an industry perspective, a lot of money has been poured into, I suppose, AML, KYC, fraud detection, fraud prevention organizations recently. And, you know, you can point to Jumio. I think you raised 150 mil. You can point to OnFeed. If you've ever done a startup in the UK or the US, you've probably used OnFeedo at some point in time. They raised 100 million, not so long ago four drop for 96 million etc how far or how much growth have these companies got to go because in theory the move to digital over the last 12 months use proliferation of this kind of technologies is only going to go up but then over the next sort of you know five to ten years you could see you know 10x growth potentially for some of these companies in my opinion i was wondering to get yours i'm also really optimistic about this whole area i think anyone who has multiple apps that they're using on a regular basis for banking or, or investing, borrowing, you know, credit cards, etc., you know, will notice that things like, you know, unlocking what would normally be password protected, or maybe, you know, one of those funny little things where you put in your code, all of that is helped by better digital solutions that obviously combat bad actors. In addition, I, you know, I'm speaking anecdotally here, I, I don't have any sort of strong numbers, but obviously, you know, I, I think most people would agree that incidences of fraud among peers, you know, particularly elderly or, or slightly older relatives seems to be going up. You know, I, I've heard of, uh, you know, family or, or friends of friends of, or, you know, friends of family who've experienced fraud and, and you know, with a, you know, steadily aging population, particularly in the UK, these sorts of things are only going to become, I think, a greater threat so, so yeah, I'm very optimistic. And if you allow me, you know, to, to, just to put some numbers around what you're saying, I mean, fraud costs, the global economy is something like over $5 trillion. Money laundered, which is then used to finance, you know, uh, illegal crime and, you know, illegal activities, it's around 2 to 5% of global GDP. So that's like the macro level. But let's say at the personal level, we're talking about, you know, everyone's was forced to kind of transform or to, to move into this digital world. The way I do it or my kids do it is fundamentally different than the way my parents do it, let alone my grandparents. So it's all about the removal of risk because, you know, banks and financial institutions, they have to compete in two fronts. One is your competitor is you're not going to use the bank that your parents use anymore. Your competitor is literally an app away. And it's all about which one has the least friction to give me my service, right? And that's, you know, how I'm going to do. Even the elderly people, everyone's going, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the little, you know, message that comes along. That's called technology-wise second-factor authentication. It's a nightmare. <laughs> you know, I think we all hate it. Yeah, the customer journeys involving it have been pretty poor in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Exactly. It's, it's horrible. So what we do is we do our job when we're not seen. We're in the back. We, we do our job. No one sees us but we kept the thing safe. That's how we define ourselves. And Mel, I was going to just bring you up on that point, especially you're a product builder. How easy is it? I mean, some of these solutions that we that I just sort of ran through before, how easy is it to connect to those kind of solutions? And how, because of that, just how important is it that they become cornerstones of the products that you build on behalf of banks and financial institutions? Yeah, absolutely essential. I mean, this is a really interesting space. And I mean, the kind of products that we get to build at 11FS, necessarily our customers will be interested in technology and looking for interesting partners and, you know, at least allowing us to do some of that great fundamental research to get the right partners in place. But the thing that... um, I guess I find a little bit risky or or kind of interesting is to do with the fact that with COVID, so many smaller businesses have had to throw up a digital shop front. And I'm imagining that that's where a lot of the risk creeps into the ecosystem. 
And I was wondering, you know, actually, um, you know, a lot of your clients are the really large, sophisticated financial services organizations. And then last week on the Spotlight show, we were talking to the CEO of Comply Advantage and their segment or their target demographic are sort of those SMBs. So they're looking to democratize access to financial security effectively and anti-fraud and, and AI and, you know, and all of that. So if, if you're looking after the whales and he's looking after the smaller companies, where do you see the risk in the chain? And is it just, um, you know, certain points where criminals can can see weaknesses? Is it more on the peer-to-peer side that Adam was talking about? Where, where do you see the holistic risk? So let me give you an example. So Comply Advantage, I mean, a really good partner of us. We we use them in a number of our of our clients and um, really happy with that partnership that, that you mentioned them. So the, the way criminals take advantage of the system is, in my view, mainly due to the silo approach. A very concrete example. If you are a consumer, if you go to your bank via the app, historically, the checks and balances that they had were different than if you would call the hotline. And the checks and balances or the mechanisms that they used to keep you safe in one, they were completely decoupled from the other one. So what would fraudsters would do, they would take advantage of that. They'll say, okay, I know that if I go via the hotline, there's less security or there's, or if I go the app in this particular bank, it's less secure. So it's because the ecosystem is so fragmented that, you know, it's the impersonation on in one channel that is weaker, another that, that is not. If you look at the distinguish between you know, the, the big banks, the large FIs that we work with, and then the SMBs, what we do is, is when we work with those, a lot of those things on the acquiring side, on the merchant side of the business, those are the, the banks that provide the services to those merchants. No one's expecting that you know, a small merchant, let's say you know, a corner shop, right, that just set up an online presence, you know, they have to rely on, you know, the Shopify's of this world, the squares of this world. And then those work with us. There are some vendors out there that are trying to, to sell directly to the little merchant. I don't think that the merchant is sophisticated enough to even understand the concept, let alone, you know, have people that know what fraud is and whatnot. But the important thing and what, you know, some companies are doing that will succeed is can they package it in a way that the merchant gets the, the, the benefit? And it doesn't even know, right? So that's the exercise that is happening. It's already there in in some ways. I mean, if you pay with some of the more known mechanisms, you know, the PayPal's of this world, they kind of give you that. But it's not yet fully there. And especially in regions like Europe, it's very fragmented. You can pay with local debit cards, you can pay with tokens, you can pay with different things. So there's still there's a lot of, there's a lot of road ahead of us. Oh that's so interesting. I kind of think about it in my mind a bit like if you use the rails and the components of a product that have been have had the vaccine effectively, have uh, you know been inoculated, then it means the whole ecosystem is much safer and you can be a small guy with yeah. a like pop-up store, but you don't have to worry because you're protected um, Correct. You know, by osmosis, I guess. Yeah, I'll give you a very concrete example. In the US, we see 25% of all the transactions. So if you're a little merchant, you have, let's say, I don't know, 50 transactions a day, you're going to benefit from what we've seen in the other millions and millions of transactions. So that's the beauty of this approach that we're, we're going at. And um, you know, the more and more this is built, I think there's more and more benefit that's gonna trickle down you know, to the small shop that will have the same benefit as the large vendors in the world and the, and the large retailers out there. Cool, they were unbelievably uh, important for, for SMBs, unbelievably important, I think, for, for businesses in general, especially as we move to digital. Let's take a pause here, though, and we'll move on to the next story just after this sponsor's reel. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Welcome back. Let's go on to the next story. This one was running in Finextra. Again, it's been all over the news. Santander in the UK is to close 111 branches. We didn't advise them. It's not a reference to 11FS. It just happens to be 111. Uh, An overhaul office space as nationwide allows employees to work from anywhere. This is the latest news that has come out, you know, as a consequence, obviously, of of the pandemic and of COVID. So Santander is to shut 111 branches in the UK and move its headquarters to a new purpose-built campus in 
in Milton Keynes. I think their current headquarters, forgive me if I'm wrong for this, is around Euston. I think it's in Regent's Place, maybe. Next to Facebook. I've worked there once. A nice building. But anyway, as part of the widespread overhaul of its real estate needs, Santander is investing $150 million to build a new campus in Milton Keynes. And they're going to be closing offices in London, Manchester and Newcastle. There's going to be about 5,000 staff affected by the cuts to work from home or in new local collaboration spaces. And I think I read that there's about 840 staff directly impacted by the closures of the branches. Nationwide uh, announced that it was also closing three offices in Swindon, consolidating in their main HQ, which is also in Swindon, and then also using local branches for their staff to work at. This is, you know, I suppose we've been talking about what's the future of branch-based banking given COVID and everything like that. Mel, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because this is, I suppose, the next step of that. We're actually seeing, you know, an action being taken by multiple financial institutions. Wanted to get your take. Yeah, I, um, it's it's, it's a bit sad, really, because I think it speaks to the death of the high street, really, as we know it. Um, I can't really imagine all of the branches on every high street still sticking around. But one thing that did occur to me when I read this was, you know, nationwide, they've got this scheme where they want to let staff work from branches alongside the branch staff. And it kind of occurred to me that, you know, when you're growing up and you're doing your education, you think about getting a career for a lot of people who want to go into finance or want to go into um, banking you necessarily have to go to London or you might be able to get away with going to Edinburgh for example but if there was an opportunity to actually work in a branch and have a mentor that is from that corporate world but just sits alongside everyone else I mean that's that's really great it's an amazing opportunity for people to learn about the the industry and big corporate banking and uh, yeah, retail banking from within branches, if they're willing, you know, if they're willing to do that. I think if all if all banks did that, it would be a great opportunity for mentorship. Yeah, I think conversely, the other way around, it'd be good for some of the people who sit in the head office all day to learn from the people, the cashiers and the people on the front line. Totally. Daniel, I wanted to come to you. Like, uh, I've seen BPs already said that they're going to do something around this kind of thing, two days a week working from home after the lockdown restrictions ease. I think HSBC and Lloyds have also done sort of split working arrangements. NatWest has sold a lot of its um, real estate in central London, which was extortionate, I suppose, from a, a cost per desk perspective, especially if you've got sort of a significant back office or middle office working from the city. Is this, I've said this all the way through the pandemic, is this the new normal? But uh, is this actually taking shape now, as in companies are going to be, you know, aggressively championing this kind of work and these kind of work arrangements? And what are your thoughts on them? Well, I should start by saying I'm just so fascinated by this whole sort of future of work question. I think it's I think it's so interesting because the long-term effects, maybe not the, the very short-term effects, but the long-term effects could be so transformational. So I'm really fascinated by it. And Revolut, obviously a huge employer in the fintech sector, has also said that it's going to move to a a 100% flexible model as well. So I think, you know, it it certainly is happening. I guess a theory I've never really shared publicly, but it's a sort of pet theory of mine, is that we always also have the the sort of analogue snapback in digital disruption in the sense that people rediscover some of the joys of, of the analog world, you know, vinyl records or, you know, certain magazine sales are at all time highs, you know, print magazines, etc. So I do think that, you know, there's a lot of annoyance here. I think that it's an impressive move by Nationwide. I think it's, you know, it shows sort of a, a you know, a decisive action. Whether it will materialise across the sector, I think will depend on, you know, this this sort of probably year or two year move to a more hybrid structure, which I think is what they're they're sort of suggesting, you know, a mixture of people coming in two days a week, you know, some weeks, you know, not at all other weeks, five days a week at certain times. I think the outcome is just so unclear. I think will I think it will involve a lot of disruptive weeks and months and, and sort of new processes being established for it to, for the dust to settle. Yeah, I've got a friend of mine who, who runs a construction company and he's never been more in demand as he is now because he's converting commercial office space, previously commercial office space, to residential off the back of permits that they're getting from the local councils that they probably never would have got, you know, two years ago. And I guess, Nuno, on that theme, 
assuming more branches are closed, what happens to all this space and what happens actually to some of the head offices, which gets also closed in town? Is this a, it's a retreat potentially, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a reluctant retreat. It's probably more of a positive from big banks from the center of town to the outskirts. But what happens to all the space? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's a number of, th- of themes in, in this whole debate. I mean, there's a reorganization of the workforce. That's first, first and foremost, pretty much across all, you know, not all the industries, but, but pretty much all the, you know, high tech industries, work policies are changing and adapting. You know, we, we uh, I mean, we at Feedsi, we're working four days a week in some months because people are working, you know, many hours, they need to break. And, you know, United, so every company needs to reinvent itself. We look at our leases and, you know, we haven't been to those places for well over in a year. And those are expensive. So I guess this is the same with every single organization out there. And then people realize, but we can get the job done without having to be all the, you know, 2,000 people, 3,000 people in central London, right? You know, and then have to go in the tube and all those things. So if you can live in, let's say, Milton Keynes or Oxfordshire or whatever and get your job done, why wouldn't you? And, and I think we can. Not all jobs can, but we can. So there's clearly a new reality. And this applies to every segment of the industry. When I first moved to the U.S. a couple of years back, you know, Capital One, one of our investors, they were toying around with, they knew the branches were going to disappear. And they were toying around actually converting their branches into cafes. It will be a cafe that you can actually go and do some sort of banking. But even that is obsolete now because your bank is your app. You know, there's nothing you cannot do today pretty much that you cannot do in an app. So why do you need to go to a physical place? There's a generational gap. There's a generation that might need to go there. So my view is all that office space is just going to have to reinvent itself probably faster than we were expecting. But, you know, I for one, and I know, you know, many people in the IT sector, many people in creative sector, they don't want to spend two hours in the morning and two hours at night commuting. It's not of no value. So that's I, I my my take is very simple. That's gone. Yeah, and it is worth mentioning that Santander said branch traffic dipped by fifty percent last year as the coronavirus swept the nation. That's quite a that's a hefty amount. Potentially, potentially seeing the acceleration. We talked about the acceleration to digital. Potentially seeing uh, as a consequence the acceleration of high street banks or high street presence, I should say, of banks reducing significantly. Let, let's move on to the next story. This was one that was covered in the information, but it's again also been picked up elsewhere. Uh, Stripe has invested in Ramp at 1.6 billion valuation, quite a hefty valuation. So Ramp, uh, if you don't know, you've never heard of them, you don't know them. They're a two-year-old startup that uh, offers corporate credit cards and software tools for managing employees' expenses. So imagine you go out, you get a meal on the company, and obviously therefore you can bill it in. It's the whole processing, the issuing that sits behind that. It's close to finalizing two rounds of funding that will value the company, as I said, at 1.6 billion. The first 65 million round gave them a 1.1 billion post-money valuation, and Stripe were involved in that round. And now Stripe is leading a further $50 million investment in Ramp at the post-money valuation of 1.6 billion to give themselves a bigger stake. To give you a sense, their biggest competitors in the space are companies like Brex, Divi, Airbase, Brex, you guys have probably heard of, I think we covered them not so long ago on this show as well. Interesting thing really about, um, well, there's a fair few things about interesting about Ramp and Ramp's business model. Concentrating on Stripe a little bit, Nuno, I might come to you first. This is like Stripe's mantra, isn't it? Like getting in early into companies, but then also getting into companies that they potentially, getting into competitive companies and com- companies who offer the same sort of services that Stripe do. And it is worth saying that Stripe only came out with their corporate credit card not so long ago. It, is this, is this the Stripe way and is this the way that organizations like Stripe will continue to be at the top and continue to command the valuations that they do because they buy up companies who seemingly do what they do? Let's start from first principles. So, I mean, I don't know if you guys have to do expense report and to manage expenses for your company. Probably had. It's broken. It's it's painful. It's a nightmare. You carry paper around and, and then your, your procurement and your finance department says you need to fill in one more one more number or one more paper. So clearly this is a problem that, you know, I don't understand why it hasn't been solved and it and it's done. And and it, and it's not. There's a number of uh, of players out there. I mean, DV also raised recently at a fairly high valuation. So it's clearly a hot market and one that is a utility that really needs to be solved. Uh, I mean, I don't know Stripe's strategy. That's that's with them. But what I do see is that, you know, and this applies to every company. You know, when you go past a certain stage, you do have to have a portfolio of products. 
to serve your customers and to serve your consumers. And I think it's just a natural evolution for them to touch everything that is uh, money-based, right? If there's money, if there's removal of friction, they need to get there. But as I said, I don't know about Stripe strategy, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, and, and Daniel, I was going to say, is this? Do you think this is a, a I suppose, a, a, an overweight valuation for a company? I mean, we, uh, one point six billion. Uh, they've only been going for two years. They've raised debt equity funding to over three hundred million. I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of money. I, I suppose just because of the, the history of the company, the fact that it hasn't been around for very long, is this? in your mind, a fair valuation? Or is this sort of the, the fintech hyperbole going out of control? I mean, it does seem pretty punchy. Uh, but I, I guess what I'd be interested to know is, is, is this the first case of, you know, a, uh, well, I don't know what the, the correct uh, nomenclature is, but a <laughs> let's just say a unicorn sort of giving birth to another unicorn, um, if you sort of catch my drift, but it may well be. We haven't seen in the UK sort of leading fintechs also, you know, materially investing into other fintechs, but clearly this is this is a Silicon Valley trend. There was an amazing statistic, I think, out in the last six months or maybe 12 months about the number of startups that Apple has either sort of bought or something, um, you know, and it's something like three a week or, or something crazy. Yeah, so I, I, it does seem a bit of a, you know, quick journey to a sort of unicorn valuation. But then again, you know, as you exactly outlined, the potential there, you know, is, 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 you know, is clearly very high. And then having Stripe on board is, you know, I guess, unquantifiably powerful. Yeah. And Mel, I was going to say that uh, at the moment, I think Ramp get their cards issued by Marketa. And as part of this deal, it, it, no one's actually confirmed this yet, but uh, the rumors are that they're going to be moving that to Stripe, which would which would make sense. Again, another great way for Stripe to sort of increase the volume on other areas of its business by virtue of, a, of an investment that it makes. How, I suppose, from your perspective, how, I guess, important is is this kind of a technology, how much growth, again, is this kind of organization like a ramp, like a Brex got to run? Because, you know, if you're looking at, you know, for me, again, you're looking at quite maybe the tip of the iceberg of an industry that's going, you know, could potentially go hyperbolic over the next 10 years or so as, as more and more organizations, especially smaller organizations, turn to these kind of products to manage their expenses. Yeah. So what's, what I find really interesting about this is that we've been working with a number of clients recently that are just starting to see the benefit of their, I guess, peripheral employees. So that could be you know, like Uber with Uber drivers and delivery folk, um, or it could be if you have merchant ecosystems and people who work for those shops, but there's a, a massive population of people that you could have access to. And the thing that I find exciting about this particular investment is that, you know, we're saying Ramp is only two years old, therefore, I think we can imagine that their tech stack will be really modern, easy to work with. They probably hired some, you know, very knowledgeable, progressive thinkers. And for the types of organisations that Stripe are already selling to, they, they tend to go after larger opportunities and then sell multiple products to those organisations. And so this would be a really natural another product, basically, to sell to their existing client base and then capture that you know massive population of all of the customers that ultimately fall into that ecosystem so could be you know millions of people that end up using ramp because of this uh, investment it's really exciting uh, it's massive scale of growth yeah, and I will say just just mentioning it, Brex, obviously their competitor, is considering offering FIDIC backed insurance backed accounts in the States. And they they believe that will three X their valuation up to eight billion. So I mean if that was we've always talked actually on this show about starting with a niche and then, you know, growing your ecosystem of products wider. It's Square have done it, you know, famously with SME banking and have now turned into a bank. Stripe also started corporate cars issuing and have grown wider, et cetera, et cetera. Is this actually potentially looks like that kind of a play you know if, if you can get 3x valuation i know it's not an easiest process in the world to get licensed in the states but if you can it means so much it's incredible let's move on to the next one because we're going to talk about new banks in the states right now fs giants have joined a 40 million dollar greenwood funding round I'm just going to go into this uh, into a little bit more detail and then come back to you guys for thoughts. This was on FinExtra. Uh, MasterCard, Visa, and a host of America's biggest banks, including uh, the Bank of America, PNC, JPMorgan Chase, Wells Fargo, 
and all-pro NFL players Julio Jones and Alvin Kamara are more of a basketball fan, so that doesn't mean a lot to me, but hopefully somebody listening, certainly the guys in the States listening will, will, will know what that means, uh, have joined a $40 million Series A funding round for Greenwood. Now, Greenwood is the digital banking startup targeting the Black and Latino communities and business owners in the US. Uh, it is the brainchild of the former Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young, Run the Jewels member Killer Mike, and Bounce TV Network founder Ryan Glover. Greenwood has signed up more than 500,000 community members since launching in October 2020. I mean, whoa, that is like a, an amazing amount of customers and community members. We always talk about building communities as part of the products that we build. That's like next level if you can get 500,000 in like five, six months. Incredible. I just wanted to go, uh, Daniel, I'll start with yourself. There's been a fair few of these banks coming up, which are serving niche communities. We talked about it, I think, on last week's show. We've had First Boulevard on here beforehand, which was incredibly involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. Cheese, we covered a few weeks ago. They're looking to create a bank for uh, the Asian community in the US predominantly and then expand from there. We spoke to Kuda Bank last week. They were on the show talking about how they've obviously started a neobank in Nigeria, but also want to move to the US and the UK and serve sort of niche uh, minority communities like some amazing amazing things happening at the moment what's your thoughts on this one and have you heard of those nfl players <laughs> i i haven't no um i'm afraid but yeah like you say i'm sure i'm sure someone out there has but i think you know i, I completely agree that signing up five hundred thousand customers in less than six months is is just extraordinary and really goes to show that you know there's latent demand for you know personalization um, in banking. You know, I, I haven't tried out any of the propositions myself, so I, I can't really give any opinion as to their sort of qualities or attributes, but I, I think you can't really argue with with that level of growth in such a short period of time. Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, Glover said, uh, this is an interesting quote, that the net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family, eight times greater than that of a Latino family. This wealth gap is a curable injustice that requires collaboration. We've seen this type of bank, you know, following a niche, being enabled by lower cost technology, becoming, I guess, uh, sort of one of the the products of, you know, digital banking infrastructure, BAS infrastructure that we've talked about a lot on this show. Uh, Nuno, really keen to get your thoughts on this and, and your thoughts on sort of how these small banks can survive and thrive just targeting niche communities. Yeah, so, so look, the, the, the first comment that comes to my mind is that there is actually, once you get into the into the domain, there's actually a lot of gaps in the financial services industry that need to be filled in. We see that pretty much in all the regions. I mean, the payment methods we see in APAC or LATAM, it's fundamentally different than what we do in Europe. And in, in the US, one of the things that surprised me was, it's kind of like a go, it's going back in time. They have so many small community banks, like 3,000 or 4,000 of them. And those, if you think about it, they happen because that's where people lived. There was a, what's happening today is instead of being location-based, it's segment-based. It's tiered. It's interest-based. It's you know a, a bank that really knows the details of a certain type of community, a certain type of even industry. There are banks for certain industries because they know, for instance, how to lend into that industry. So as Dan was saying, we will see a lot of specialization, not geographically, which is what we had historically, but these community banks, but, you know, based on interests, you know, why? Because think of what, what's a bank? A bank is a mechanism to assess risk. If I'm an expert at, at assessing risk as, you know, if you're in the media industry or if you're, I can probably give you a better service while staying be far more competitive because I'm not going to use, let's say, the models or the credit risk decisioning systems that a big global bank is going gonna, is gonna to be using that where, where everyone's going to have to fit in. So that's the way I see it, that you will go towards, you know, almost services tailored for you. Whoever gets there faster and better will 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 have a market across all the regions. That's the beauty of what we're seeing right now. You can do that. 
Yeah, it's a big, big market. Um, Mel, I wanted to come to you, uh, especially about this concept of community. I've never seen a community being raised that quickly. It's 500,000 community members. And we, we again, we talk about it quite a lot, research communities, you know, engaged communities, communities who help you through your alpha and beta release product, all that sort of stuff. Asa Bradley, I think you might have been on this episode, actually. Uh, I was, yes. Oh, good. Okay, fine. So you know this, but I'll, I'll take it to the, uh, to the audience. Uh, she was the co-founder of First Boulevard. She came on the show in episode 508. And she, she said things like uh, she was building a community by the community that it aims to serve. And she also threw shade at Killer Mike, uh, saying that the first Boulevard founding team are fintech veterans. We are not a rapper who decided to open a bank. Is is that uh, is that fair? Uh, just again, given what Nuno says, you know, that the understanding of your customers is just so important, especially as you look at alternative credit scoring and things of that nature. Is it is it fair to do that? Or actually, should these guys be, you know, appreciated for the, you know, for, for the initiative that they're founding? I think she said it with affection and it was tongue, okay. tongue in cheek because she, I mean, she really is a veteran, actually. You know, she she's worked for some incredible firms and she's right. They absolutely do know what they're doing with respect to, you know, the tech infrastructure and really great partners and getting the rail sorted out. Um, and I believe that First Boulevard will create some really unique experiences for their customers. That being said... I don't think it's fair to generalize because actually I think the name Greenwood is genius and it really resonated with me when I when I read the stories. I'm definitely my favorite story of today. So I don't know how much you guys know about this, but um, Greenwood was a historic freedom colony in uh, Tulsa in Oklahoma. And it was basically this really thriving economy. They, they called it, you know, colloquially the uh, Black Wall Street. But it was this really thriving economy. And it's a sad story. I'll let you guys, um, you know, research in your in your own time. But I think there is a lot of romance, history and passion associated with this name. And that's why I think it has such a sufficiently huge following to merit everybody's attention and and rightly so but actually if you look at what they're planning to do i mean i I was researching the product and their their website and how they're marketing this they're not claiming to offer any kind of experience that's different to what we would expect in traditional banking it's just sort of interest savings spending accounts I do think it looks really attractive. I think they've got the UI nailed and certainly the branding. But actually, the most important thing for me is that they're saying, you know, join the movement. And, you know, one of the first things they're saying is pay it forward, benefit somebody else, donate, uh, you know, donate to charity. We do all of this great work as a result of you signing up. It's really transparent. There's no hidden fees. Like they're saying all of the right things to me. And I think companies like Greenwood are trying to address historic financial injustices. And I think that people will be able to get behind that. So, you know, I wouldn't even categorize it as like a niche community play. I think this is really fundamental to readdress some of the inequalities in traditional banking. Yeah, purpose-based banking doesn't necessarily need to be differentiated, but the uh, the marketing and the distribution does look good. And I'm really, really interested to see what they come up with across the next six months to a year. Let's move on to stories that we didn't have time to cover. So we're going to, Mel and myself are going to go through sort of three stories or so, which we didn't have time to cover in full, but still deserve a shout out. Mel, do you want to go first? Thanks, Adam. So the first story is over on Finextra, Maniga raising 10 million euros to meet a green surge. So they just closed a 10 million euro investment round to meet surging demand for new green financial products. Earlier this month, Iceland's Icelandi Banki became the first Nordic bank to implement Carbon Insights, Maniga's inaugural green banking product into its digital banking offering, providing users with an estimate of their overall banking footprint based on their spending profile broken down into spending categories and time periods. The new funding will be used for continued investment into Maniga's R&D activities for environmentally friendly banking products and to grow the firm's sales and service teams. So apologize for um, butchering many, many words in that intro, but essentially 
it's kind of cool. On the Maniga site and in their app, you can see that um, they've just launched a number of different insights. So one of which is you can see your, I guess, the extent to which you're producing carbon. So your car journeys and also tracks things like your performance relative to peers as well on the platform. So that's quite interesting. And then you get uh, cash back as you spend, which is a feature that I really like. So rather than giving you some kind of uh, points or making it difficult for you to claim cash back, it's quite a cool experience. They just give you that straight back into your bank account, but you then have the option to donate that to uh, carbon offset charities. So yeah, following on the, the green theme that's very in vogue at the moment. Back over to you, Adam. Yeah, the green theme, and it should stay in vogue as well. Uh, but anyway, um, EU fintechs form IBANT Enforcement Coalition. So this was a story from Finextra. Uh, Starling has joined forces with Wise, N26, Revolut, Raisin, Klarna, SumUp and Fire. To mention just a few, uh, all your favourite fintechs, to launch an initiative to tackle IBAN discrimination in Europe. Uh, so the website, which is called Accept My IBAN, is where customers can file a complaint which is forwarded to the relevant authorities and the European Commission, saving users the hassle of directly dealing with the disputed payments. This is a really cool idea, actually. IBAN discrimination occurs when a bank or company doesn't accept a payment instruction because it's not from the same company in which the bank or company is based. I'll let that one sink in. Uh, Some companies across the EU are refusing to accept payments from a UK euro account because the IBAN contains the country code GB. And this is, as you can imagine, uh, a fallout from Brexit. So even though uh, the UK is no longer as part of the European Union, it's still part of the uh, SEPA area, the single euro payments area. Uh, So for refusing to accept a payment from the IBAN code of a SEPA member is a violation of EU rules. Quite a lot of uh, jargon and sort of technicalities in there. But I think this is a case of the more the merrier. So, you know, if if you individually are trying to dispute a payment and have to go and raise that complaint individually with the payment, let's say a payment merchant or with a bank in Europe, it will take X amount of months. God knows how long if you're even going to get the money back. But actually, if you do it through a single uh, source and then those you know payments are collectively, if you like, you know, filed as a complaint and, and, and pushed as one, obviously it's going to make a much bigger and better impression. And I think this is a, this is quite a cool initiative from a, a you know a wonderful array of startups to try and make sure and uh, you know to look out for i suppose your, your average you know joe blogs who've who's got a payment issue so i quite like it uh, i love you know love it when sort of startups all come together and sort of you know go back to their roots and sort of challenge the authority if you like and challenge the establishment so uh, yeah really like that one so the next story is uh, paypal letting users pay in crypto so this one i think is really interesting So PayPal customers in the US can now pay at millions of online merchants around the world with Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum or Bitcoin Cash. The checkout with crypto feature converts users' crypto holdings into fiat currency at checkout with the certainty of value and no additional transaction fees. The feature comes soon after PayPal began offering its users the chance to buy, hold and sell cryptocurrency directly from their PayPal account. The move helped drive Bitcoin's price up more than $1,000 to over $59,000. Amazing. Earlier this week, fellow payment giant Visa demonstrated its seriousness about digital currencies by carrying out the first settlement transaction in the US coin stablecoin. So... The thing is, and I kind of wanted to get your feedback as well on this, Adam, I don't think people necessarily want to pay with their crypto holdings. I mean, I don't. My strategy is kind of buy and hold. So it just seems a bit bananas to me that I would, um, you know, convert that at the checkout back into fiat. Stablecoin, now I do get. um, And I think that it's also interesting in the UK that the regulators decided that there'll be you know, focusing their regulation on stablecoins rather than cryptocurrencies because of implied threat to competition, which I'm kind of, I can kind of see. But I mean, would you convert your bitcoins into fiat to buy a jumper or something on using PayPal? Not at the rate that's going up at the moment, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's interesting. I think there's, a, there's also quite a lot of things like tax connotations to this. Bitcoin in the UK is now going to be considered like property. So you will get, so at the point of conversion, you will, and I'm speaking, this is very UK centric and UK focused, but at the point of conversion, you will get 
taxed as you would, you know, let's say, any you know, other capital gains, yeah, yeah, or any other uh, physical asset, and that might affect some people's willingness, if you like, to just convert their Bitcoin into fiat, especially if you've made quite a lot of money on it, which obviously some people have. I mean, I, uh, I'm i going to hold, but then I don't hold a hell of a lot. I hold Bitcoin and Ethereum, but I don't hold enough to certainly move the move, move the price. Um, but it's, uh, it is an interesting feature. I think it, it it's one that will become, I think, better used, the better accepted Bitcoin and, and Ethereum become. And, and, you know, PayPal doing this is a heck of a move for the institution that is that is cryptocurrency. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. But do you think that, um, do you think that, you know, coins that are pegged to a fiat currency will be more widely used in these, in these circumstances? Potentially. I, I still think at the moment they're easier to use and they've got, I think in my opinion anyway, they've got sort of their, their loyalists. But but again, it's all dependent on which merchants, I guess, would, would well, I suppose in some respect, which merchants would, would look to accept Bitcoin, et cetera, which means you don't obviously have to make the conversion to, to fiat in the first place. So I, I think it's all around the proliferation of who, you know, and accessibility of using this cryptocurrency, which would then negate the need to actually convert it in the first instance. But, you know, stable coins in themselves is is kind of, I'm not going to say it's completely removing the fun of crypto, but it's certainly changing the game of why cryptocurrency started in the first place. And a lot of crypto purists will look at stable coins and just think it's another version of the US dollar. And I'm, you know, I think there's, you know, if you look at, you know, how it's all manufactured and put together, there's probably quite a lot of truth in that. And finally... U.S. fintech sincere to target pet parents with debit cards. So this was a, a, an article from Fintech Futures. So this is the fact that sincere are looking to add its debit card offering to pet-related rewards, covering things like pet food, vet bills, rescue shelters, and team-ups with pet care brands. Uh, last year saw a spike in pet owners, uh, I think across the world, certainly across the Western world. In the US, the American Pet Products Association, which is the APPA, found that by October 2020, that some 11.38 million US households had bought a new pet since the pandemic began. I, th- I think this is actually more of a, you know, a a proper story rather than an and finally story. I think there's actually, you know, we've just been talking about niche segments. This is this is definitely one as well. Uh, Nuno, I'll start with you. What's your take on this? I mean, I I, mean, I have pets. I, I don't know enough to, to 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 know about this, but 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 it comes down to the same theme of specialization, right? I mean, this is the same theme again. What we're seeing is people that can know how to offer a product, financial product for a segment, and then they probably do the right partnerships with vendors of I don't know, pet food, whatever they will offer a better product than generalists. And technology is so cheap today that you can build these solutions competitively. And then you put, you deliver value. So I believe we will see a lot more of those happening going forward. I mean, you didn't mention it, but, you know, was it Square that bought Tidal, the music streaming service? Yes, it was. So yes, yes. A, a lot more of those will happen. And I don't think we're we're seeing the full picture, but specialization specialization the technology is there to 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 enable it and this is just one more yeah and daniel just just get your thoughts on it medical bills in the u.s for pets the average american spends 638 dollars on a dog each year i don't know do you have a pet i do i do i i got a puppy in the sort of first i guess let's say month of the lockdown last year so yeah a a dog who um who's just turned one now oh bless what kind of dog is it a border terrier oh lovely and would you would you switch to sincere off the back (laughs) i i might um but i think my broader point would be that i think one of the the biggest strengths of fintech and digital banking is that you know like we talked about you know just just a few moments ago you know being close to your community i.e getting good ideas about what people actually want and you know what it is that's important and maybe you know things that people would pay up for or, or just are of value to them so i think this is you know maybe maybe a, a not too bad example of that that if you if you stay close to your to your community or even you know create a community around you then hopefully you can learn what is the value. Yeah. And Mel, I'll give you uh, the last one. Any any thoughts on this one? Well, I was thinking about, you know, the differences between the US and the UK. So medical care, for example, is a lot more accessible and cheaper here than it is in the US, unless, of course, you've got insurance. So if you actually get pet insurance along with your debit card, I can kind of see that being quite like a serious proposition for a lot of people, especially if, you know, 
you've got four dogs and you love going rock climbing or something and or you know if you've got if you own uh if you own a, a labrador and uh you've got kids and there's lots of sort of chocolate sandwich situations happening you can imagine yeah you, you can imagine that it would be a, a relief to a lot of people but i don't see insurance mentioned in the show notes so i don't know if that is uh if that's the proposition or if it's literally just around um you know rewards from pet food and and so on which is sort of less sexy from my point of view yes i don't know i think it could be it it, it smells like it's uh an interchange based rewards number which would lean on sort of checking account offerings in the states so i don't know if there's a there's a piece of uh, a piece of it which which chunks off the uh, the insurance market but an interesting story nonetheless i think just goes to support some of the stuff that we've been talking about today in terms of niches and the ability to spin up banks and financial services products at the moment at a really really cheap or cheaper rate certainly than uh, than you could do previously and that wraps up this week's news. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you to all our guests. I'm going to just quick fire around you guys. Just whatever your preferred method of being contacted is, then just let us know. Nuno, how about yourself? Twitter and Sebastiao, or just uh, email me at nuno at Awesome. And congrats again on the raise. Uh, that's amazing news. Uh, Daniel, how about yourself? People can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Daniel Lanyon, or Twitter uh, at DJ Lanyon. Also, obviously, I encourage everybody to read altfi.com and sign up to our newsletters, come to our events, et cetera, et cetera. I do as well. I'm, I'm a sign up. I love Excellent. it. I read it daily. Mel, how about yourself? You can find me on LinkedIn and uh, I am sporadically on Twitter. And David's advised that I sort that out because uh, I don't post very often, but I shall try harder. So Melissa Forex. <laughs> Cool. Uh, and as for me, my Twitter handle is AdamD8. Uh, and obviously you can find it at 11FS at 11FS.com. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others obviously to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much for this week and goodbye. Thank you.